2 Kings chapter 5, starting at verse 1 and reading through verse 14. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But Elijah, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes. He sent to the king, saying, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not the Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Well, good morning. Thank you, Steve. It's good to be back together. Some of you have run up to camp and back, and we'll do it again. Remember to keep those who are up there, and we'll be up there in the weeks to come in prayer that God would do His work. We've been, uh, I keep reminding you just so you're, not confused. We've been flying over the Old Testament. We missed so many good things. That story about Naaman today, we won't spend hardly any time there, but um, maybe someday we'll hit it a little, in a little more depth. But here's a bit of a timeline. If you have been trying to track that, there's, I handed out some timelines if you, if you want to keep that for yourself. I've added one date today, Elisha's squeezed in there. I don't know what I'm going to do now. I'm going to have to start cutting off the left side to fit him in, but hopefully you don't have to do that. As you, if you've been here, we, we put a pause on the timeline, the, the progression of the story the last few weeks um, of the divided kingdom of Israel. We've been kind of following the, the history, right? We put a, put a pause on that to look at the wisdom literature books. There's five of them. We had already looked at Job's and Job and Psalms, and, and we then spent time with um, Ecclesiastes, 
Song of Solomon and Proverbs before that. Song of Solomon was last week and we interpreted the, the book along normal lines. That is a normal sense of reading and taking the words to mean what they meant or what they would naturally mean. That's opposed to an allegory or a typological writing where everything should be seen metaphorically describing something else like God's love for Israel or the church. That has been a common interpretation of that book. But we looked at it in a more direct sense. Three-part outline there. You can see that to this sort of drama involving two lovers. There's the engagement pre-marriage time and there's the wedding, actually the wedding night. There's then thirdly the realities and commitment within marriage, some of the progression that would that took place in the in the marriage as a story that as a poetry this is revealing um, the relationship progressing from beginning all the way into several years into marriage and the book I believe you can disagree with me the book I believe is emphasizing God's gift of romantic and sexual love in its right place I think Solomon's intention here as the author is to teach to to impart wisdom, remember it's wisdom literature, concerning romantic relationship, relationships, doing it God's way. The couple here practices sexual restraint before their marriage, and then you see enjoyment and growth as they learn to love and serve each other within marriage. Now, it's a, sometimes it's a little awkward book, but I believe it's an important part of God's word, a pertinent reminder to us in the culture, our culture, of God's design, His wonderful design for sexuality, for marriage, for gender. That's being twisted, isn't it? We, we, we need to keep on our toes here in, in this area. The devil is a great deceiver. And without God, our flesh agrees with the devil's deception, deception so much of the time. So we need to know God. We need to devote, devote ourselves to His way, His good design. And, you know, we talked a little bit about falling off the horse we can, t we can fall off the horse on the left side by minimizing, by avoiding the topic, by um, avoiding good romance and sex in its proper place. We can fall off the right side of the horse by uh, giving ourselves to the millions of perverted methods that the devil offers and the flesh is tempted by. So let's, let's keep that in mind. But, for, but this, this morning we're going to turn back to the progression to the timeline, if you will, of as we fly over the Old Testament. So you can turn to 2 Kings. It's a little shorter this morning because we're going to take some time for, for communion after, after a few minutes. 2 Kings, this is the second part of the two-part writing on the kings, kings of Israel. We also saw, as we looked at 1 Kings uh, several weeks ago now, um, a great name in biblical history. You remember a man by the name of Elijah. He came on the scene about 875 B.C. Among other miracles in Elijah's time, he predicts a drought. He raises a, a widow's son to life. He enters into confrontation with wicked King Ahab. God shows up there on Mount Carmel with a great victory. You probably remember that. Fire falls from heaven. Elijah likes fire. He calls fire down multiple times. I'm not quite sure what's going on there, but there are other words and works of Elijah that we didn't look at, but we, we did mention that he ran for his life in discouragement at one point. Do you remember that? Jezebel, the wicked queen, was after him. 
this is in 1 Kings 19, so we, you don't have to turn there, but uh, he ends up down south, south of Israel at a place called Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. Do you remember that name? I don't know if you remember that. That's the same mountain, the same place that Moses met God centuries earlier, where the Ten Commandments were given, where other conversations with God took place. Elijah meets God there as well, and God revived him as a prophet. We call him a prophet, sort of the first of many, not 100%, but in, in a sense, the first of many sent by God to an evil kingdom, an evil time. So as we work through the Old Testament here now in our flyover, you, if you've been thinking about it, we've got a lot of prophet, prophetic books ahead of us, and we will spend time in, there's 17 of them, and we'll spend time in each one to a degree looking at the prophet's life, the prophet's message. Sometimes the prophets do miraculous signs. Sometimes they foretell, <clears throat> excuse me, the future. Much of the time, they simply proclaim God's word by deed and word. Proclaim God's message. I think we'd be amiss process this for a minute, we'd be amiss to not point out that the prophets are a manifestation of God's mercy. You know, sort of like the judges, you remember them, they came on the scene to point people to God back in the days of the judges, the evil times, and now we're in the times of the kings, and these prophets come on the scene multiple times, sent by God to inspire people, Israelites in particular, God's people, remember, to turn back to God, turn back to him. Well, as we come to the second kings now, that's the tale of two kingdoms continues. Uh, we're sort of, the, the, the book will sort of ping pong back and forth between north and south. You remember we have both of those kingdoms going on now. But it's also, it's not just a survey of the nation or the kingdom. It could be, but it's not. There, there's a focus, and you're, we'll, we'll see this directly there's a focus on righteousness and on unrighteousness. So it's always good to look for a purpose of writing in the scripture. We can see part of the author's purpose here is this focus, this emphasis on, on morality, righteousness and unrighteousness. The, the important aspects of what we find in 2 Kings, as well as other places, are really spiritual in nature. I'll mention two Second Chronicles has some crossover to what we look at today, what 2 Kings is all about. We won't spend much time in 2 Chronicles, but it's there as well. So look at chapter 1 of 2 Kings. You have a man by the name of Ahaziah. He is king in the north. This is Ahab's son. You remember Ahab, bad dude. This is his son, and he's not much better. In fact, he's godless. Well, he's he's not quite godless. He's Yahweh-less, if you will. He's now fallen somehow from a second story window, he's injured himself, and he sends messengers to inquire of a foreign deity, God by the name of Baal Zebub. You have to do some more research to grasp all the background that's, that's in this text, but it's a false god, of course, of the surrounding nations. This is a far cry, is it not, from being called out, being holy? He, the king, is seeking wisdom, seeking his future from a god of a foreign god whose name literally means god of the flies. 
kind of reminds you of Saul a little bit. Remember what Saul did in the day before he died? He went to a witch inquiring about his future. And partly the consequence for that was his death. Well, Elijah, the outdoorsman, the hairy man of God, he intercepts this mess, these messengers with a word from God that, by the way, you are going to die. Well, the king, he doesn't appreciate that too much, and he sends out a contingent of 50 men. We're looking at the first chapter there. Uh, 50 men to arrest Elijah. He, tw- he tries this twice. Both times, Elijah calls down fire from heaven and consumes these guys. And the king, I don't really know what was going on in his head, but he sends out a third group of 50 men. And Elijah ends up going back to the king with them. And he says, because you sought advice from a god of Ekron. By the way, O king, is there not a god in Israel? He says, you will die. So here's an example, the content, the focus of this book, the first chapter is exemplifying that. It's spiritual. The interest is not so much political. It's spiritual. Well, if you move to chapter two, there's a new king on the scene. And look at verse one. Talk about a spoiler. It says the time had come, this is first, or Second Kings 2, verse 1, the time had come for the Lord to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elijah and Elisha were traveling from Gilgal. Well, we've been introduced to Elijah. We didn't give him the time he deserves, but suddenly we know God's plan for his future. As far as I know, this is, this is the only statement in Scripture or anywhere that's not mythological or fiction, that speaks to an individual's destiny like this. I believe in the rapture of the church. I don't know about you. I believe in the rapture of the church. I know, and we know that Enoch, from pre-flood days, he, uh, he was suddenly with the Lord. He didn't die, did he? But this is unique to Elijah. Taken up by a whirlwind to heaven. In that same verse, we're introduced to another man. It's not the same name. Don't be confused. It's a man by the name of Elisha. So you've got a J and you've got an SH. By the way, if we spoke Hebrew, these names wouldn't sound nearly as alike. They wouldn't be nearly as confusing. But we don't, so we're stuck with Elisha and Elijah. Elisha is the follower of Elijah, the disciple, if you will, the protege of Elijah, the older prophet. And Elisha now refuses to leave the prophet's side, Elijah, after this knowledge of Elijah's end, his his earthly end. He follows him then, you can see in the verses there, like a puppy from Gilgal to Bethel to Jericho and finally across the Jordan on the east side. And look at verse 9 of chapter 2. Elijah says there to Elisha, tell me what I can do for you before I am taken from you. Elijah or Elisha responds, please give me a double portion of your spirit. Some translations there might you might see, please let me inherit two shares of your spirit. Probably that the latter one that I, I just said is a little more accurate. So Elisha is not asking Elijah for a double amount of power or a double amount of miracles. He's asking Elijah to be his successor to get, in other words, more of his spirit than any of the other prophets. In other words, kind of like the firstborn of a Jewish family would often get twice or the double amount 
of the other children and in an inheritance. Let me, Elisha is saying, be the choice to carry on the ministry that you began. Well, Elijah responds, this is a hard thing, but if you see me go, it will be yours. Now, there's some puzzles and some mysteries to these stories. I mean, I, I don't understand all of this interaction between the two prophets. So, hey, more study and more background knowledge would be, would be wonderful. That would help us. We, we should continue to work on that. So then you see in the presence of Elisha, Elijah, the great man of God, was indeed taken up to heaven inside of a whirlwind by a chariot and horses of fire. Special guy. I, I don't know. Absolutely unique method of leaving the earth. As far as I know, Elijah hasn't died yet. Well, I wish we had more, profit, more time for, for this, this prophet Elisha as well. But it appears that Elisha did indeed receive the spirit of Elijah. And I think we can understand that at least in, in brief to mean the spirit of power from God. And he began a very powerful ministry during this period of the Old Testament. Elisha became known in both the north and the southern kingdoms. He became known outside of Israel. The world and, and the works of Elisha then are primarily seen in the first eight chapters, actually two through eight of Second Kings, but you also see him anoint Jehu as king of Israel right at the beginning of chapter nine, and then into 13, you, you don't have to necessarily turn there. We're only going to get through this first part of Second Kings today, but into chapter 13, or the beginning parts of, of 13, some, some more miracles of Elisha are given to us, including um, the, the miracle of of somebody rising from the dead after Elisha's death. Elisha cured poisonous water and poisonous stew. He floated an axe head to aid one person. He cleansed Naaman, the general of Aram, outside of the borders of Israel from leprosy. We read about that, that dreaded disease. He opened and closed individuals' eyes, their ab ability to physically see, their ability to see spiritually or metaphysically. He was a social prophet. He was involved with kings and cities in Israel. His miracles included raising people from the dead. As I said, one of those happened after he himself was dead. You know, these are fascinating times, aren't they? I, again, something to apply further study to. Why did God, and, and even how, why, how did God, I mean, why is it that God chose to reveal himself his power in this method that he did here during this period of history. Elijah, the one with the J, the first one, the Elijah the prophet, he's been compared to John the Baptist in the New Testament, the forerunner of Jesus. Just as John the Baptist preceded Jesus, Elijah preceded Elisha. Elisha's miracles have sometimes been compared to those of Jesus, Jesus's miracles. Now, don't get me wrong, we know that Elisha was not God incarnate as Jesus was, God in the flesh, but perhaps there's some points to be made in comparing these two, Elisha as a typological coming of, of Christ, as a forerunner, if you will, a comparison to the Messiah himself in later years. Now, I find it fascinating, as I said, I hope you have some interest as well 
But I find it just interesting how God chose to work through Elisha and Elijah before him in such a powerful, obviously miraculous way. But he doesn't always do this. God doesn't always do this. It, this was a very concentrated period of the miraculous, if you will. It's, it's, an, it's another topic for another time, and I don't think we would find complete agreement amongst ourselves, and that's, that's fine. That's even good as we choose to love each other as priority above um, agreement. But why, you can ask yourself and maybe your friends and your family, why are there periods of miracles and other periods that seem to be without miracles in history. That's a good point of discussion for us, and maybe we can't fully know. Certainly, that's okay, but we can banter, we can discuss, and we can think about it and perhaps disagree and move on. Personally, I do believe part of it is, for some reason, God does work in different ways in different times. Maybe only he knows the reason why. So I hope you have a chance to look at the life and the times of Elisha in more detail. Again, there's the date of Elisha's ministry. A man of God, a man of God. In fact, he was called that multiple times there in the stories in 2 Kings, the man of God. Now, if you were writing the books of the kings, think for a minute. You're the author, relaying the message of what is going on during these times. God's message, actually. I don't know what your focus would be or my focus would be. But again, the emphasis here is not just a simple record of the rise and fall of kings, of their wars and of other nations and accomplishments. It's more than just a summary of what has happened. It's more than a history lesson. As I said, there's a spiritual, intentional emphasis that we should notice. There's a lot we don't know about this divided kingdom, right? A lot we don't know. A lot of it's left out, the times, the people, the happenings. But the first eight chapters, and, and this is the first third of Second Kings. The first eight chapters are devoted largely to the ministry of Elisha with Elijah there in the beginning. Now you can find charts and numbers of Elisha's miracles I wouldn't be surprised if there were other miracles that we don't have recorded in the, in the scripture, but a lot of space is given intentionally to these accounts of Elisha, to these stories, and many of them, God is touching individuals' life. Individuals are being touched by God through Elisha and his miracles. God mercifully reaching to someone Touching, caring, loving people. Now we know God, of course, is sovereign. The Bible says that he raises up and he deposes kings. Nations rise and fall in his plan. But on the other end of that spectrum, God loves you. He reaches out to you in mercy. God is a personal God. I think we can see that God is a personal God as you consider the ministry of Elisha. Here's three basic points as we think about this. The first one, you know this. If you don't know, pay attention to it. But most of us do. But God offers salvation to one and all. Individually, giving you the opportunity to be saved. Think about Naaman for a minute. God gave him the opportunity for healing 
I'm not sure about his spiritual life. Specifically, Naaman, go wash in the dirty Jordan River. The Jordan River is not... If you're used to living around here, the Jordan River is not spectacular. It's small, it's muddy, it's kind of tepid and warm. That was Naaman's salvation. He had one chance. I think God gives us one chance at salvation, at real life. And that chance is Jesus Christ. That's our one chance. The, other, the alternative is second death. In fact, today is your best option for salvation. You may not see tomorrow. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, today is the day to call upon Him and be saved. Take advantage of what He has offered you. Ask your parents, kids, if you don't know. Ask your parents how to be saved. Ask someone in the church, elders or someone else. God in mercy reaching out individually to you. He loves you. Acts 4.12 says there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. Of course, the one that they're referring to is Jesus himself. A second point that I was thinking about is most of us here are believers. We make up the church. We come as the body of Christ. And I'm reminded that God knows you intimately and he cares for you intimately he doesn't overlook anything in your life any part of you is not overlooked by god now we go through all sorts of things we feel all sorts of things in life it's our at points our responsibility to call out and ask for help from him from others it's our responsibility to give thanks and to rejoice and and to enjoy the things god has given us right in 2 Kings chapter 4, a widow cries out to Elisha for help. One person. God miraculously provided for this widow to pay off her debts and then well, to avoid prison and then to have sustenance for her family. Romans, Paul, Paul in Romans says to us that God works out everything for the good of those who love him. Now, we may not see it all right now. We may not understand how that all looks or feels, but it may not, in fact, it may not even feel good to us. And we might not have a miracle in our life, but God is in the details. He's working in it all and through it all. Individually, He cares about you. He loves you. We might know that, but Let's be reminded of it. And the third point I was thinking about as we, as we come and start beginning to think about communion, as believers, it would be proper for us to celebrate our salvation. Now, this is a response. We find salvation, we respond. The center point of who we are as God's children is that God's grace reaching down to us and saving us and there's so many ways that we can and should celebrate God's grace. First of all, we start by submitting to Him as Lord, choosing to seek Him, to know Him, to make Him the center point of our life. In fact, can you, how can you answer the question, is He your master? Is God, is Jesus your master? 
we also celebrate by telling God's story. In particular, the story that he's writing in your life as a Christian. He's writing your story as you go along. And as God reaches you and me, individuals, he reaches others as well. You know, the stories here in Second Kings, many of them are personal. The, the widow or Naaman or others. But those stories have reached millions and millions of people, haven't they? Your story, too, can reach others. It's not a private work entirely that God has done. Share that work. Don't be afraid of that. And, of course, there are many, many other ways we can celebrate in response our salvation. I think we should celebrate the work of God in our lives, His grace in particular, by remembrance. By remembrance. In fact, we, Jesus, before he died, he left a command for us. And so we know that we should celebrate by remembrance. And, and, and the command is what we do in communion. We take the bread and we take the cup. We call this an ordinance, an order, if you will, from the Lord, from our Lord. I want to take a few minutes this morning and just remind us of what this ordinance is. We call it communion, as well as why we do it and a little bit of how we do it. There's more to it than what I'm going to say, but let's just be reminded. Now, as I said, Jesus gave instructions for his disciples, and that would include us. We take that to mean beyond his disciples. The instructions are for us as well. Those who follow, he gave the instructions concerning partaking of the elements of communion. Now, as Protestants, we really only have two ordinances that we hold to. One is communion. We try to practice that regularly here at Bridgeport in a, because the Scripture commands us to. We know that it's the right thing to do. The other one is baptism. As I mentioned last week or at some point, um, if you have an interest in baptism, we have a baptismal service planned for the end of next month. And we usually do that annually to um, follow that second ordinance. If you're saved, bapti water baptism is the symbol of that salvation that Christ has asked us to participate in. But Jesus, picture him sitting here with his disciples, Matthew 26 and other places. But as they sat there, they were eating the Passover meal the night before Jesus was betrayed and died. Do you remember the Passover meal? That was the feast implemented by God for, for the Jews as they came out of Egypt. The Passover meal was also a reminder, a meal for them to be rem to remember what God had done for them, delivering them from Egypt. As they sat there in, in celebration of the Passover, Jesus picked up some bread off the table. He broke the bread and he began to hand it to them. And he says something like this. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus then did the same thing with a cup of wine. Saying this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. We understand Jesus gave these two things, these two elements of communion as symbols 
That's why we use bread and juice. They don't turn into anything else. They're bread and juice, but they're symbols to represent what we remember. Isn't it interesting that your senses respond to these symbols? Taste, smell, touch. These symbols are here to stimulate memory. They don't have some kind of inherent power or mysterious magic. You can't be saved by them. You can't be changed by them. But they are meant to stimulate memory. They're meant for meditation to help us in our walk. Now, partaking in communion is an opportunity to pause, to reflect, and to solemnly celebrate the graciousness of God in saving us. The bread is there to remind us of his body, as he said, this is my body. Take this, remember the brokenness, the the beaten body, the abused body as a sacrifice for you. And the cup, the blood was given, wasn't it? You think about that lamb on the altar. The blood was shed. In other words, the life was given for the the one giving the lamb. That's what Jesus did. He became that sacrificial lamb. His blood was let in order that he would die for us. That's what the two elements are representing. Now, I want to speak to all of us, but specifically to those younger version of us. Kids, why don't you put aside those pictures and those conversations for just a minute? I got a couple questions for you. You ready to raise your hand? Okay, good. If you're 12 or younger, sorry, this teenagers, you're out on this one. If you're 12 or younger and God has saved you, raise your hand. Look at all those hands. Awesome. And praise God. Amen? Amen. Yeah. You know, the elders were talking about this, and I want to relay this message to you. Some of you are visitors, but I want to say that we are proud of you guys, and we love you, and we're so grateful for your part in this church. You, don't, you think you are just floating along, but you have a part in the body of Christ. It doesn't matter your age. God has plans for you and your service in this congregation and outside. The second question, you paying attention? How many of you are hungry? (laughs) Oh, man, yeah. Well, I'm I'm with you. Okay, we're we're getting hungry, aren't we? But I think we can wait for lunch. What do you think? Will we die? Is anybody going to fall over dead in the next few minutes? I I think we're okay. So this little piece of bread, this little cup of juice, it's really not a pre-lunch snack, right? I mean, yeah, it might taste good, but as you taste it, remember that it's there to remind you of Jesus' love for you, more than it is to fill your tummy or to feel good in your mouth. Jesus loves you, and he died for you. It's a great opportunity, kids, and, and all of us, right, to show our love and our devotion for Christ. Take a minute. We're always moving. Pause for a minute. Remember. Okay, kids, one more. You listening? And really, this is for all of us. And I have to say this because the scripture says this. We are here. We want to take the bread and the juice. We want to do this carefully. It's not like an afternoon snack. That has its place. An afternoon snack is a a great deal. But we want to come to communion with a serious state of mind with reverence, 
you know, you think about a celebration, and, and I don't know what comes to your mind, but not all celebrations are loud and laughter. This is a celebration of solemnity, of seriousness. Listen to what the Bible says about coming to take communion. It says, Then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, so you can do it wrong, will be guilty of sin against the body and the blood of the Lord. And it goes on, listen to this, let each person examine himself, and in this way let him eat and drink, excuse me, let him eat the bread and drink the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to eat and drink judgment upon myself. So it says, let us examine. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So in this passage, I think it's, it's talking about sin in our lives. Is there known sin in your life? Sin, that if, sin affects others, doesn't it? This ordinance, as we take communion together, unifies us. It should unify us. We're the body of Christ. And so therefore, I urge you to humbly confess your sin to God and perhaps to someone else. You're not the only sinner out there. Don't feel bad. But that's, our, that's a good opportunity that we have now is to examine ourselves for sin in our life before we come and take communion. It's a great opportunity to look inside and check. If you have sin in your life <clears throat> that you're not willing to confess, then pass the elements by. If you're not a believer and you're not willing to call upon the name of the Lord for salvation, then pass the elements by. So, kids, one last thing. Did I already say that? Well, another thing. Before we pass the bread and the juice, and we'll do it today, and we'll do it again in the future, right? I think, let me just offer, I think this is a great opportunity for you guys to set aside your drawings and all those things that are, that are great for you to do during the service, but just set those, set those things aside for a few minutes, um, and maybe, hey, some of you have parents or grandparents here, you can sidle up to them and ask them, What's going on? Why, remind me why this little cup of juice. Remind me why we're taking this bread. And, and parents, grandparents, this is a great opportunity to quietly teach, to quietly disciple, to meditate and remind with your children what we do this for. This is a significant thing that we come to. Take the opportunity with your kids. I don't think anybody's going to mind some quiet whispering. Let it rise as you... Take this seriously with your with your children or your grandchildren. Let's just let's just pray as we come now to the Lord's table and we pass the elements separately. Part of that, I think, is a good opportunity for us to take the time, not speed through, but take the time. Take one, and then in a minute we'll do the juice. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to to celebrate your great sacrifice for us. God, I'm not even sure what all the details of taking and doing this reverently, what it all means, but we want to do that, God. We want to set aside the distractions. We want to examine ourselves to the point of knowing our sin and confessing that before you. You forgive, and we can come and celebrate in remembrance of what you've done for us. And God, I pray that we could do that here this morning and that we would 
learn of you even as we celebrate this Lord's Supper. In Jesus' name, amen.